Welcome to the Hope Fellowship Podcast, where you can listen to our weekly walk through the Bible. We do hope you enjoy your time with us today. Please check us out at hopehogesville.com. And if you feel led to support our ministry, please click the link in this episode's description. Now here's this week's walk through the Bible. Uh, Acts 17, verse 1 through 9. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, This Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is... The Christ. So uh, I'm going to pause there for a second. Uh, We'll remember that uh, as Paul was traveling, he would typically first try to find a synagogue of Jews. Remember, synagogues were not necessarily uh, groups of believers in Jesus, but mostly they were people who believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. A lot of them were of Jewish descent, meaning that they were um, Jewish by blood. Right? They were descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or one of the 12 tribes of Israel. All right? Or they were converts to Judaism. There were some Greek converts to Judaism. All right? And so it, typically in the synagogues, these people believed in God and had practiced the study of some of the Old Testament writings, uh, the the, some of the writings of the prophets and the, of the law of God's law. So they were familiar with all that. So Paul would start there, preach the gospel to those people, basically uh, arguing and making the case and bringing the good news that Jesus the Nazarene that you heard about recently, this, this guy that was born in Nazareth that was crucified and then is rumored to have risen from the dead, that Jesus... Uh, everything that you've heard that is being said about him is true, and that Jesus is the Christ that God has been telling you about in the scriptures, the Messiah. So he's trying to connect the dots for them. So that's where he starts in Thessalonica. He goes to find a synagogue where they're gathered every week to discuss the law of God, and he tells them about Jesus. And at the synagogue, he begins to make converts. People begin to believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so they begin to meet in Jason's house and they begin to um, spend more time discussing the scriptures and explaining how Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that and teaching them the fullness of the good news of God. So the church of Jesus is beginning to grow in Thessalonica. All right, so we'll keep reading. Verse 4. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. But the Jews, becoming jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar. And attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people." So in this case, they, uh, the, uh, a lot of the leaders, the religious Jewish leaders of the community uh, became jealous and upset because now some of these followers of Judaism are being converted to Christianity. And, uh, and 
Uh, and it was, uh, and even it says some of the leading women were converted, which means most likely those were wives of some of the uh, Jewish religious leadership were being converted to Christianity. And so it was upsetting the household um, order, so to speak. And uh, so some of these men became really upset and they went out into the community, out into the main square and found a whole bunch of people that were easily manipulated and, um, and stirred up enough people to kind of create a mob. And so they took the mob to uh, the closest place or the only place they knew of where they thought they could find these Christians, specifically Paul and Silas and Timothy, so that they could drag them out and um, silence them and keep them from being able to continue their work. But when they got to Jason's house, Paul and Silas and Timothy weren't there at that moment. So they took Jason, who was the man of the house, as well as some of the other leading uh, Christian believers that were there. So let's keep reading. Verse 5, the Jews became jealous and taking along some wicked men from the marketplace, formed a mob and set the city in an uproar and attacking the house of Jason, they were seeking to bring them out to the people. So they were going to drag them out of their house and have them tried before the people. Verse 6, when they did not find them, they began dragging Jason and some brethren before the city authorities, shouting, these men who have upset the world have come here also. Basically saying, these guys are going around from place to place, causing an uproar everywhere they go, and now they're here. We're going to deal with them and not allow this to continue. And Jason has welcomed them, is what they say in verse 7. So Jason was hospitable. Uh, he apparently was one of the converts that came to know Jesus Christ, came to trust in Jesus there, and uh, had welcomed Paul and Silas and Timothy into their home and, uh, and was giving them a place to stay and a place to meet and talk about Christ. So now Jason is being drug out into the street um, and persecuted. So sometimes the persecution doesn't always come to the pastors and the leaders and the um, evangelists. In this case, it came to the man who simply was willing to welcome them into his home. An ordinary, everyday Christian now being drug out into the street because of his willingness to be hospitable to the messengers of Jesus Christ. The accusation in verse 7, it says, and Jesus and Jason has welcomed them and they all act contrary to the decrees of Caesar. So now they're being accused of, um, of defying Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Now, um, what, uh, what had been practiced in the Roman Empire for a while was what was considered to be the imperial cult, meaning that the emperor is king, and not only king, but he's God. So he's to be worshipped as God. And so then for them to come and say there's another king and that Jesus is the king was a violation of the emperor worship and uh, punishable by death. So now they're accusing Jason of participating in all of this. Um, the punishment was generally very severe. 
In verse 8, it says, They stirred up the crowd and the city authorities who heard these things. And when they had received a pledge from Jason and the others, they released them. Now, that, base, that pledge is basically bond. So they basically required a payment from these men, and then they let them go. Uh, so then after they let them go, um, it, it kind of leaves it open. You don't really know what takes place after this. Um, there's a possibility that the bond, uh, after making this payment, then there was going to be uh, further repercussions that were going to come later. You don't really know. Um, but what did take place next was that they went and found Paul and Silas and Timothy. And they let them know, listen, you're in great danger here in Thessalonica. We care about you. We believe in what you're doing. We love the gospel message. We believe we can take it from here in Thessalonica. You need to go. You need to leave for your own safety. And so they snuck them out of the city in the middle of the night. Let's look at verse 10. It says, the brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And Berea is the next stop on the road. So we'll come to Berea next week. All right. But uh, in the middle of the night, these men got Paul and Silas and Timothy and snuck them out of the city. All right. So the mission's work in Thessalonica was seemingly kind of short. They were there for a little while. They made a few believers, but it would, those few believers were enough to establish a healthy, growing church to the extent that all the other churches in the region were talking about them, about there, this rumor that was spreading around about how all these pagan idol worshipers in Thessalonica were coming to know Jesus Christ and being converted to being followers of Jesus. And this is where I want to flip over to 1 Thessalonians. And let's take a look at 1 Thessalonians chapter um, 1 Thessalonians chapter, chapter 1, let's start there, and we'll take a note of some of these uh, things going on in Thessalonica. So Paul's writing a letter back to them now from prison, hopefully as an encouragement and an exhortation uh, to encourage them to continue walking in their faith. Look at what he says about the Thessalonian church. In Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 3, he mentions a few qualities about them that we don't see in the book of Acts. He says, let's start in verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. So notice a few things that he said about them. One, that they, uh, um, they had a steadfast hope. In the Lord Jesus Christ, they had a labor of love, and they had um, they had faith. These people were well established in their faith. They were known for their work of faith. They were known for their labor of love. They were known for their steadfast hope. Now, jump over to verse six. It says that you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word in much tribulation with the joy. Of the Holy Spirit. So through tribulation, they were coming to know Jesus Christ. And let's keep reading in verse 7. It says, So that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. Now, the Macedonian region was a large region, Philippi was also in the Macedonian region. So the Thessalonian church kind of became an example 
to all the other small churches in the region. They began to develop this reputation and they began to be talked about. People from other churches were telling the story of how they were turning to God from idols and and living uh, for the true God. Look at verse Look at verse 9. It says, For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven whom he raised from the dead. This, that is Jesus who rescues us from the wrath to come. So this little church was known for their faith, they were known for their love, they were known for their steadfast hope, they had begun to develop a reputation in the churches all around as a church that was seeking to please God and honor God, and they were repenting from their idol worship and now worshiping the one true living God. This was a remarkable thing to take place, because it's one thing to convert from Judaism People who already believed in the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, now they're just accepting Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. But this is, it's another thing to see all these pagans who were worshiping idols and worshiping the emperor, um, risking their lives by converting to the worship of the one true living God, Jesus Christ. So remarkable little church. But look at what uh, we see Um, take place we get to this part of the letter in Thessalonians chapter 4 first Thessalonians chapter 4 where he begins to give them instructions further instructions listen little church this is how I want you to live first of all he reminds them of what he's already taught them like you've already been taught these things and I want to remind you of these things and I'm also encouraged because you already are doing these things you're you, you don't really need to be encouraged in these things because you're already doing them. Look at what he says in verse chapter 4, verse 1. Finally, then, brethren, we request and exhort you. Uh, that means that he is asking of them and he's encouraging them. And it, it's, it's an exhortation. It's like an instruction with an encouragement. So I'm encouraging you to follow these instructions in the Lord Jesus Christ, that you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God. So he's basically saying, I want to instruct you on how to please God with your Christian life. But then he says, just as you actually do walk, meaning that I already know that you're walking this way. So I want to give you some instructions on how to please the Lord, but I already know you're walking this way. So that's kind of an encouraging thing saying, listen, I, I know your faith. You have a great reputation. Words reached me in prison about how great this church is and how much you guys are growing and pleasing the Lord and living your lives for God. I want to encourage you to continue in that. But the first thing that he wants to really emphasize in verse one is that he says that you are to excel still more in what you are doing. Now, that word excel uh, means to abound or to to go above and beyond. So the instruction is to continue living as you are, but grow and add to this godliness that you're walking in. He is encouraging them to work. He's encouraging them to strive towards something better. Now, um, this is where I'd like to just remind the church and encourage you that as believers, we are Christians because of the work of Jesus not because of our work. We are, 
we are in right relationship with God because of the work of Jesus and the Holy Spirit in our lives. The Holy Spirit changed our hearts and applied the blood of Jesus Christ, which sufficiently covered all of our sins, past, present, and future. So as a result of that, we can stand before God holy and uncondemned. The work is complete. But the physical life that we live is a bit of a work in progress in the sense that we are still looking forward to the day when we will be perfected. But while we live this life that God has called us to live, obviously we still are alive on this planet. And so we are instructed by God to live this life a certain way, which requires discipline and that requires action and that requires intentionality. And so he's calling the church to be reminded that God cares about how you live your life. Yes, your eternity is secured by the blood of Jesus Christ and by the work of God on the cross. And, it, and the work is finished. Jesus says it is finished. And that's what that means. But the life that you live on this earth matters. The way you live as a Christian matters. So should we go about being lazy? Absolutely not. Uh, the way Paul talked to the Roman church, he says, shall we continue in sin just because we know that grace abounds? Absolutely not. God forbid. Now that we are saved and we're instruments of righteousness, then we should live as instruments of righteousness. Now that we are believers and saved by Jesus Christ, then we should live as though we're saved by Jesus Christ. And that's what these letters are about. If you read Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians, you're going to see Paul talk uh, several times about work. He's talking to them about working with their hands. In fact, part of his message was that while he was with them, he determined to not to make it so that they didn't have to take care of him very much. He wanted to work hard while he was there so that he wasn't a burden on them. Apparently, they were struggling with the sense of laziness in, um, in their lives, whether it be the way they worked or whether it be their own spiritual, the way they lived their spiritual lives. And he wanted to communicate to them very intently that the life God called them to live as Christians needed and required work, um, not for the sake of attaining salvation, but because the, the life that we've been given by God is valuable to God. It is a stewardship from God. It is on loan from God. So he is allowing us to live life. And the, re the purpose of that is for us to take this life God's given to us and to use it for his glory. And that requires intentionality and work. So this is what he says. I want you to excel still more in that. Now, if you jump over to 1 Timothy um, chapter um, you don't have to go there, but you can if you want to. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 7. This is what Paul said to Timothy. Now, remember, Timothy is on mission with them in Thessalonica. But this is part of Paul's letter to Timothy. And this is what Paul tells Timothy in verse 7. Have nothing to do with worldly fables, fit only for old women. On the other hand, discipline yourself for the purpose of godliness. Now, discipline, what is that? Discipline is... Um, that's practice, that's training. It is the, the act of practicing and training yourself so that you can be good at something. And so he's telling Timothy, discipline yourself. What are you, and, and then what are you specifically disciplining yourself for? Godliness. What is godliness? 
That is to live in the fear of God or to live in a way that is pleasing to God, that is honoring to God, that glorifies God. So he's saying that is your goal or that is something that you are working toward. In verse 8 in 1 Timothy chapter 4, he says, For bodily discipline is only of little profit. Meaning you could discipline your body like you're training for a, a sport or an activity. That's good. It's actually healthy to discipline yourself in many ways. But he says that's, that's profitable a little bit. But godliness is profitable for all things since it holds the promise for the present life and also for the life to come. So he's saying you're investing not only in your life today, but in your life uh, to come. He's saying you are, you are working for godliness to live a life that is pleasing and glorifying to God, and it requires discipline. Discipline yourself. Train yourself. Practice godliness in your life. So these are the instructions. Uh, every once in a while, it's good for us as believers to come to these parts of Scripture where we're reminded to be disciplined about our behavior in our present life. And our behavior should be pleasing to the Lord. This is what he says back to Thessalonians, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 1. He says, excel still more. For you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. So he's saying, we gave you instructions, we gave you commands by the authority of Jesus Christ, speaking to you the word of God, being spoken through the apostles. God is instructing the church on how to live. And he says, this is God's will for you, your sanctification. Sometimes we want to know God's will for our life. And I think it's okay to pray and ask God, what are you doing? What do you want me to do? I think those are that's fine to ask that. And sometimes we... Um, struggle to know exactly how God wants us to handle certain circumstances of life. But there are some things we can, be, we can be sure of that God has revealed to us already. Uh, some of these things are uh, revealed to us in God's word where he has clearly said to us his will for us is to be sanctified. Now there's a lot packed into that to sanctification. Now, what is sanctification? Sanctification um, is, is, the, um, is the ultimate goal of being made holy. Now, um, presently, through the work of Jesus Christ, we are already holy. Our position before God is holy. So as God looks at you and I, he sees holy ones. That's why we are called saints. The word saint means holy one. That's our name. That's our identity. We are holy ones, not because we have perfected our behavior, but because, because Jesus has perfected us before God through his blood. But we are called into this process of sanctification uh, in our bodies while we live on this earth. And so he's saying it is the will of God that you pursue a sanctified life and that you are seeking to have a behavior that is holy and pleasing to God. All right, so he says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. And then he goes into a whole bunch of examples of what that might look like. The first set of examples here, this first section is about how um, it's about sexual ethics and immorality. 
and then he talks a little bit about loving your neighbors and um, and uh, how to conduct your business in the world around you. And then he talks about how to encourage the church with our future hope. And then he gives kind of a list of general instructions. I'm just going to read a few of those so you can kind of get a sense of what he tells this, the Thessalonian people about how we are to um, live in a way that's pleasing to God. And as a church this morning, consider Thessalonians. One, we're, we're not the church of Thessalonica. However... These words have been preserved as the word of God for us. So as a church, as a fellowship of believers, as a part of the greater church, these words are for us. These are examples of how we are to conduct our lives in a way that is pleasing to God. So as I read through these this morning, I'm not going to preach every single one. I just want to kind of read through them. I want you to just consider these as examples of how God would have us to conduct our lives as believers. Since we are being sanctified... And since we are instructed to excel still more in our lives that are pleasing to the Lord. Here are some of these things. He says, this is the will of God in verse 3, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3. For this is the will of God, your sanctification. That is, that you abstain from sexual immorality, that each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor, not in lustful passion like the Gentiles who do not know God, and that no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter, because the Lord is the avenger in all these things. So this section, he's talking about immorality and sexual ethics. And he's basically saying, don't, don't allow yourself to participate in these things. And don't bring other people into those things with you. And so then he says, God is the avenger of these uh, violations of these instructions. You've been warned. Verse 7, he says, For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. There's that word again. He's called us to be holy, not impure. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Meaning that if you reject this teaching, you're not just rejecting the person who's saying it. Like you can look at me this morning and say, you know what, I really don't like the way he's preaching this. I'm just pretty much reading it to you. So you can decide you don't like me. That's totally fine. And I probably will make some mistakes this morning. But if you're reading these words themselves and you don't like them, you're not just rejecting what I'm saying. You're rejecting what God's saying. All right. And so you can, it doesn't matter what culture says about sexual ethics. It doesn't matter how things are changing or what the times might say. You go to God's word, look at God's word says, if you're rejecting this, you're not rejecting what man says, you're rejecting what God says. It's as simple as that. So this is what he says in verse 9. Now as to the love of the brethren, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another, meaning that I really don't need to say a lot to you guys about how to love one another because it seems to me you're doing it already. It seems like the Holy Spirit just put it in your hearts and you're doing it, and that's amazing. So that's a pretty cool encouragement, right? Wouldn't that be awesome if Jesus showed up this morning and said, you know, I don't really need to say anything to you guys because y'all, y'all got it. You're doing great. You know, keep it up. You know, that's kind of what he's saying there. And then he says, um, verse 10, indeed, you do practice it toward all the brethren who are in Macedonia. But we urge you, brethren, to excel still more. So there it is again. He says, I don't really need to say anything to you about loving each other, but do it more. Love each other more. Keep it up. Do more. And then, it, uh, you know, sometimes it's discouraging to be told to do more right? You feel like you're doing all you can. You're doing, you're doing the best you can. Then somebody says, yeah, it's good, but you could do better. 
you know? Um, but in this case, I think he's genuinely meaning it to be encouraging. You know, excel, continuing that. Don't, don't go backwards. Um, you've probably heard the, the old adage that you, there's no such thing as, um, as staying the same. You're either going, you're either getting better or getting worse. You know, there, you, you, there's, you, there's no, you can't plateau very long, right? So if you're growing, you're growing. But if you stop growing, you're going to start going backwards, right? So I think all of us feel like that in our, as we're getting older in life. It's like, okay, we didn't, we didn't plateau very long. We're all kind of in a steep decline at this point. So anyways, um, so this is what's happening. He says, uh, excel still more and to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life and to attend to your own business and work with your hands just as we commanded you. That to me is an encouragement in scripture because there's so much in our culture that pressures us to be the uh, catalyst of change everywhere we go, right? To be the, the, the influencer that has the most coverage of influence in the world. Like to be this person that has all these, these things that make a major difference in the world. And God says there's value in leading a quiet life and being obedient to the Lord. There's value in working with your hands, being good at what you do, doing it for the Lord and leading a quiet life. He says that there's value in that. Some of us, it's been ordained by God for us to lead simple, quiet, ordinary lives for the glory of God. And God is greatly honored by that if we are being sanctified and if we are um, excelling more in, in our walk with him. And if we are walking in godliness in those things and we're being faithful to God and the things God's given us to do, we don't have to do all these huge things. Some of us have just been called to do the simple things every day and honor him with it. And then he says, so that you will behave properly toward outsiders and not be in any need. All right. So then uh, in verse 13 through the rest of chapter five, verse 11, he's talking a lot about the coming of Jesus Christ. And he's given this some instructions about Jesus is going to come. And he tells him, I want you to encourage each other with these words. Remind each other that Jesus is coming back. Now look at verse 12, chapter 5, verse 12. He says, but we request of you, brethren, you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. We urge you, brethren, to admonish the unruly, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with everyone, see that no one repays one another, uh, repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all the people. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do not quench the Holy Spirit. Do not despise prophetic utterances, but examine everything carefully. Hold fast to that which is good and abstain from every form of evil. You see, it's kind of a, a list of all these really great things to do, right? Really great. This is how God, these are examples for how God would have us to live in a way that's pleasing to him. And I would encourage you to take some time this afternoon or this week and go back to those verses, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 and 5, um, and just read through those and spend some time meditating on those things and how those things are reflected in your life and how they might even be corrective 
of some of our own behaviors in certain areas of life. But let's, I'd like to conclude by reading verse 23 and 24, 1 Thessalonians, that kind of drives home Paul's message. He reiterates this that he's been trying to teach them. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. Meaning that that's the hope and that's what we're looking forward to. And that's what we have an assurance of is that God will do this work. God is sanctifying us, leading us every day into his holiness. And our heart should desire to go that direction. If we are still craving and desiring the sins of the world, it should be um, our heart's desire to put those cravings to death and to see those things nailed to the cross and buried in the tomb forever. And it should be our heart's desire to grow in the character of Jesus that reflects all that is pleasing to God. He says this, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit and soul and body be preserved complete without blame at the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're looking forward to, to be preserved complete. All the things, spirit, soul, body, everything about us, completely redeemed. And then he says, verse 24, here's our great assurance, a promise that we can all hold on to. Faithful is he who calls you. Who calls us? God called us. God called us to salvation. God brought salvation to us, and he is faithful. He says, and he also will bring it to pass. So the God who brought us to salvation is the God who will complete the salvation. He started a good work in us. He will complete the good work in us. What a blessed assurance. So I'd like to invite you to pray through those things this morning. Number one, if you're struggling at all in your, uh, in your belief in God, if you're living in sin, the call here would be to repent and to trust in Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. He will forgive you of your sins and make you right with God. I just want to clarify again that if you're not a believer in Jesus and you're not right with God, you can't get right with God by obeying all these, this list of things that I just read through this morning. Those things aren't going to make you right with God. You need Jesus. Start there. Cry out to Jesus for salvation. Trust in the blood of Jesus to make you right with God. But for the believers in the room, I invite you to pray through these things. Pray that God uh, will encourage our hearts uh, for the ways that we are walking and pleasing him in our walk with God. Uh, pray that he will help you to be uplifted in that and to not grow discouraged in your walk with the Lord, even as you, it's difficult at times. Pray that God will help you to excel still more. Pray that God will help us to excel in all the things that are pleasing to him as we live our lives on this earth. And then um, uh, pray that God will help us to, um, to grow in this and to be convicted of areas in our lives that are not pleasing to him so that we can repent and then we can correct those behaviors.
So I invite you to examine your hearts this morning as we pray and as we close. Examine your hearts. Consider anything that might be displeasing to the Lord. Confess it, repent of it, and ask the Spirit of God to create in you a behavior that is pleasing to the Lord that would replace what is impure and ungodly and unholy. Ask the Lord to continue that work in you and praise him and give thanks to him that he's promised that he'll finish that work. Let's pray through those things this morning. Thank you for listening to this week's Walk Through the Bible with Hope Fellowship. I leave you with these words from Numbers 6, 24 through 26. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine on you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance on you and give you peace.